0: Instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you are enjoying the podcast, I do encourage you to subscribe using your favorite podcast software, whether it's TuneIn, Stitcher, Overcast, or Amazon Music at amazon.com slash otrdetective. Today's program is dedicated to the memory of Dame Angela Lansbury. This is the first episode that was recorded after her death was announced. She was such a great talent and, of course, starred in one of the really memorable detective programs of the last part of the 20th century, Murder, she wrote for 12 seasons, along with so many other accomplishments as a star of stage, screen, and yes, even radio. We tip our hat to her, and I'll have a little more to say about Angela Lansbury after the program. Now, let's go ahead and get into this week's episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. The original air date is April the 27th, 1954, and this one is The Frustrated Phoenix Matter. For your listening enjoyment, John Lund
1: as... Johnny Dollar.
2: Bradley, Johnny. Read
1: any good books lately? Now, that's a brilliant conversational bit. I'm
3: referring specifically
2: to the books of Martin
1: Veneberg. Veneberg. Is that the novelist who made such a big splash about, uh, oh, 20 years ago? The
2: same. The self-star genius of
1: Chicago's literati who wrote two smash sellers back in the 30s and hasn't been heard from since. Not until yesterday, that is. And what happened yesterday? Well, at the height of his heyday, he bought a $25,000 paid-up trust policy from We had a request from him yesterday asking for some change of beneficiary form. Oh, what's so unusual about that? Nothing except that his wife's the present beneficiary. and The Chicago police have been looking for her ever since Vandenberg was murdered last night. Wow. might be a good idea to brush up on my reading of that.
3: Mind if I break in here to ask you a question? Here it is. How much do you know about your United States government? For example, do you know what the work of the Department of Agriculture entails? Somebody, someday, may recommend that the Department of Agriculture be called the Department of General Scientific Progress. Because employees of this branch of our government have been responsible for the improvement of our shoe leather, our mattress stuffing and the rubber tires which we put on our automobiles. But these improvements are somewhat of a sideline, since the main duty of the department is to assist the farmers of America. Now, back in the days when it was just getting organized and explaining to Congress why it needed more money, the Department of Agriculture acted only as a sort of clearinghouse for information which farmers picked up and passed on about better ways to grow corn, raise pigs, and so on. Then, the farmers began asking questions about getting rid of blights and parasites and other such farming problems, and the department had to come up with the right answers. That's when the department began to expand and take a direct part in improving farm operations. As an example of its success in farming improvement, there's the item of egg production. In the past 50 years, the production of eggs has been increased over 300% as a result of the expert advice on the feeding and raising of poultry developed by workers in the Department of Agriculture. Other important developments have been made by the department's chemists, such as the improvement of insect killers, fertilizers, and the discovery of new ways in which to use products which farmers have been growing since the beginning of time. For example, do you know it is now possible to make mucilage from sweet potatoes? Paper from corn stalks, paintbrushes from milk, and wood as strong as steel. These are just a few of the advancements made by the Department of Agriculture. Future advancements will add much to our American way of life.
1: Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Home Office, Washingtonian Life Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the frustrated Phoenix matter. Expense account item one, $63.30. Airfare and incidentals between Hartford and Chicago. Expense account item two, $1.20. Cab fare from the Sherman House to the editorial offices of the Daily Examiner. I figured a quick brush-up on Martin Veneberg's recent history might come in handy. But as it happened, I didn't get past the city editor's desk. Sure, you can use the morgue, Dollar. Might have a better idea for you, though. Oh, yeah? What's that? Have a talk with Richard Hanley. Who is Hanley? Freelance literary critic and columnist. We buy a lot of his stuff. He can tell you everything that's in the morgue and then some. Sounds like he knew Veneberg pretty well. Yeah, he was his disciple, friend, father, confessor, and psychiatric like, social worker, for. 20 years. That sounds like a pretty good recommendation. If you can find Vanna wife, she could give you a better one. Oh, how's that? Hanley was her first husband. Expense account item three. $1.35. Cab fare to Richard Hanley's modern studio apartment on Elm Street. The severe functional appearance of the studio seemed to be reflected in Richard Hanley.
4: Mr. Uh, Martin Vandenberg, did you uh, want me to tell you about Mr. Dollar, the man or the writer? There's a difference. As a writer, he'd been touched by the gift of genius. As a man, he was dissolute, depraved, contemptible.
1: Would you mind explaining that, Mr. Hamley? Yeah, in
4: 1933 and 34, he published two of the greatest novels ever written. They burst upon the muck heap of the creative writing of the times like twin comets blazing a pathway to the stars. For the next 20 years... He drowned that brilliant light in a foul sea of alcohol dissipation and moral dissolution. In short, the Martin Veneberg who was killed last night, Mr. Dollar, was a drunken bum. I was told that you were a friend of Veneberg's.
1: Seems I was misinformed.
4: For 20 years, I have been trying to get that man to write again, right as I knew he could, as he'd done before. I nursed him through his alcoholic stupors, counseled him, pleaded with him, even financed him for a year or two. And
1: how did he react?
4: Well, the vows were many, the accomplishments, nil. Whatever I gave him, he used to state his appetite for dissipation. Well, 20 years is a long time to spend in the
1: face of all that. Not to mention the loss
4: of your wife. I hadn't contemplated giving him Helene, too, Mr. Dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is she now? I have no idea. I'd finally given up on Venneberg some five weeks ago. I haven't seen either of them since.
1: Well, anything else you can tell me, Mr. Hamley? Any ideas as to who might have killed him or why?
4: No. He had no personal position. Possibly no longer even a talent for anyone to be jealous of. I can't conceive of any possible mookies, Mr. Dollar. Well, there's always that $25,000
1: insurance policy. I walked over to the Chicago Avenue police station and introduced myself to Lieutenant Borschach who was in charge of the investigation. Ah, oh, for what it's worth, here's what we got on it, Dollar. The Manneberg was killed in the one-room rat he called home by two 25 caliber bullets fired at close range. Ballistics has classified the gun for automatic. Time of death was approximately 11 p.m. last night. Nobody heard the shots. Nobody saw anybody come in or out. Nobody knows any reason why Veneberg should have been killed. Who discovered the body, Lieutenant? A man by the name of Dalton Towler. seems to be an old friend of Veneberg, strictly a screwball bohemian type, you know? What time did he come across it? Three o'clock this morning. Unusual hour for him to come calling, was it? Well, not according to Towler. It claims he was working on some earth-shattering poems at home. He finished them and tore right over to show them to Veneberg. According to him... The womb of night is the birthplace of genius, and time is an artificial dungeon created by benighted Philistines in which to imprison men's souls, unquote. (laughs) That's very descriptive, but uh, not very illuminating. Well, the same could be said about everything else about this case so far. Until we came across that insurance policy, we had a blank right down the line. You figure that's the motive for Veneberg's murder? That's the only one that even looks close. What about the wife, Elaine? Yeah, that's got us beat, too. As far as we can find out, she disappeared five days ago. Nobody in the neighborhood's seen or heard of her since. We got an APB out on her, though. We'll pick her up sooner or later. Mm-hmm. Anything in Veneberg's recent actions to give us a lead? Well, one unusual thing popped up. Don't know if it means anything, though. Yeah, what's that? We found a nearly new portable typewriter up in his room, clean, oiled, ready to go. The neighbors tell us that for the past week, Martin Veneberg has been writing again. Only we couldn't find a scrap of manuscript. Well, there wasn't much more Vorschach could tell me. Veneberg's history during the past ten years was summed up on the police blotter. Arrests for drunkenness, vagrancy, disorderly conduct. And the coroner's jury would write the epitaph, Homicide at the Hands of Person or Persons Unknown. I found Dalton Towler where his landlady said he would be, in Newberry Park. One square block of tired grass and scraggly bushes in the midst of a dreary section of Chicago's near north side. Collar was addressing a couple of dispirited-looking squirrels. Come, you beady-eyed scavengers seeking the tumorous fruit of the goober. There are no gleanings here save those unpalatable ones scraped from the moldering refuse of the ashes called the minds of men. Do you think the squirrels understand that? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, Far better, perhaps, than the two-legged protoplasmic dullards who stole the earth under the guise of Homo sapiens. Well, I have to take your word for that, Mr. Towler. A unilateral knowledge of identity which indicates you have the advantage of me, sir. Well, my name is Dollar. I'm an insurance investigator. In other words, a brazen delver into the secrets of man? I'd like to ask you a few questions about Martin Veneberg. Yes. A final degradation of genius. To be dissected piecemeal upon the cold, impersonal autopsy slab of a park bench. All I want to do is find out who killed him and why. An impossible task, sir. You ignore the simple fact that Martin Veneberg is not dead. That's not what the police records say. An abysmal conclusion, reached by pygmy-minded illiterates. A soul such as that of Martin Veneberg can never die. It will rise again from the ashes of its mortal remains, like, like that, that fable bird, the phoenix, and soar on glorious wings of death that Or evermore. Well, let's get back to the police slaughter and sordid realism, shall we? Very well, sir. What do you wish from me? Any information you can give me about who might have wanted to kill Martin Veneberg? Their names are the legion, sir. How's that, Mr. Teller? Any of the incompetent, the jealousy with the hacks who spew out their clumsy, ill informed words could have killed Veneberg cheerfully. Out of sheer frustrated envy. Well, I'm looking for a little more practical motive. Well, what more practical motive could there be, sir? Worldly goods. These he had none. What about his wife? Ha! <laughs> the ridiculous implications. Why? Helene is a lovely soul. One who worshipped at Veneberg Shrine. Who was dedicated selflessly to her tireless task of catering to his genius. I can think of 25,000 reasons why she might get tired of it. Surely you're not referring to that insurance policy. Well, it supplies motive. Elaine's disappeared. Unless she turns up fast with an airtight alibi, it looks pretty bad for her. I'd never considered it in that light before. Well, now that you have, how does it look? Would it be of any assistance to her if I were to inform you where she was last night? It might. You realize, of course, that my antipathy towards the minions of the law prevented me from divulging this sooner. But if it's... Might be of possible aid to... Where her was she, Fowler? In uh, where she'd been every evening for the past month. Typing manuscripts, sir, at the apartment of Richard Hanley.
4: Yes, that's right, Dollar. Eileen has been coming here evening to uh, type my column for me. How did you
1: forget to mention that little fact earlier?
4: My attorney was out of town. I wish to consult with him first. What about Helene or yourself? There have been no official charges made against her, and uh, I have nothing to be concerned about. Mm Mm-hmm. Where is Helene now? I can tell you only what I just finished telling Lieutenant Bozak over the phone. And what was that? I expect Helene here, as usual, at 8 o'clock tonight. No objections if the lieutenant and I are here? Not at all. My attorney will be here, too. Do you mind telling me what time Helene left here last night? It was a little past midnight. Are you sure about the time? Just as certain as you are, that Grenneberg was killed at approximately an hour before that.
1: Well, oh, he got an alibi ready, too. You seem to have thought of everything, Mr.
4: Hanley. Under the circumstances, I thought it a reasonable thing to do.
1: Expense account item four, sixty-five 65 cents. Cab fare to the Chicago Avenue police station. I just paid off the driver and was heading for the entrance when Horshock came hurrying down the stairs toward a squad car parked at the curb. Oh, Dollar. You got here just in time. Come on, come on, darling. Yeah, sure, Lieutenant. What's up? A <coughs> break on the Vanderbilt case. You picked up a lane? No, but this might be better. County Hospital, Joe. <laughs> Some woman took an overdose of sleeping pills with an old picture of Bennebergs in her hand. A personally autographed copy of one of his books was on the bed table beside her. It sounded interesting. Yeah, maybe. What are you holding out, Lieutenant? They found a twenty-five caliber Beretta automatic under her pillow.
3: So many great men have attained the highest office in our land, the presidency of the United States. Can you guess the name of this man? He rose to the presidency through successful careers as lawyer, army officer, and statesman. Though President Garfield offered him a cabinet position, he turned it down to become a senator from Ohio. Later, as president, he recommended the annexation of Hawaii, but his term expired before the bill could be acted on. He also helped the admission of North and South Dakota, Montana, Washington, Idaho, and Wyoming estates. If you don't have his name by now, here's another clue. In 1890, he signed a bill giving pensions to American war veterans. Who was he? Benjamin Harrison, 23rd President of the United States. His life is part of your American
1: heritage. And now, with our star, John Lund, we bring you the second act of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. to Wood Street and Cook County Hospital took us approximately 12 minutes. One of the interns on duty at the emergency entrance gave us a briefing in one of the admittance rooms. Here's all we've got on her. It isn't much. She only came in about 20 minutes ago. Yeah, yeah we know. What's the dope on her? Yeah, uh, Jane Doe, white, female, American, about 30 years of age. Reported symptoms, overdose of barbiturates. comatose condition, pulse, respiration, blood pressure normal, Stomach contents removed, stimulants administered hypodermically, patients temporarily in 312. You well, know, there's the highlights, gentlemen. Uh-huh. Seem to be a few discrepancies, Lieutenant. Now the normal pulse, blood pressure, and respiration is. They don't fit in with my ideas about the symptoms of barbiturate poisoning. <laughs> they very definitely don't. I'd say the odds are about 10 to 1 that the lab report will show stomach contents to be normal. Uh-huh. Well, let's have a look at it, Dollar. <laughs>
2: me, Martin. Please forgive me. I didn't mean to do it, Martin. But it's all right now, darling. We'll be together again.
1: Uh, We'd like to ask you a few questions, Miss. No,
2: no. Go away. Leave me alone. Please leave me alone. Oh, Martin. Martin, darling. Martin.
1: I'm a police officer, Miss Lieutenant Bozhek. And this is Johnny Dollar, insurance investigator.
2: I don't care what you are. Now go away, please. Go away. And leave me here with my memories of Martin.
1: What was Martin Veneberg to you?
2: He was my one and only true love. I worshipped at the shrine of his genius. Life isn't worth living without him. He was the shining beacon that was my one and only guiding light.
1: <clears throat> are you sure that uh, shining beacon isn't the spotlight at that grindhouse on North Clark
5: Street? Hmm?
2: What are you
1: talking uh, about? You're a darling darling, aren't you? The one whose build is the tempestuous sweetheart of pepsi delights?
2: So what? What's that got to do with my love for Martin Veneberg?
1: You better be able to prove it.
2: What do I got to prove? enough for me that him and me were secret lovers. What right have you got to come around crying into a person's secret life?
1: Well, there happen to be a few laws concerning attempted suicide, Miss Darling.
2: Laws? You mean that there's I a law? I to
1: mention a few about filing a false crime report.
2: Now, wait a minute. I didn't do nothing wrong. You
1: better start talking, Miss Darling.
2: That low down dirty Thinking, Sammy Farwell.
1: Your uh, press agent?
2: Yeah. It was his idea. I told him it was nuts that we couldn't get away with it, but no. He's got himself delusions. The greatest gimmick since them. he says, so look what happened. I get myself in a jam in this lousy pill factory. Got to wrestle with a stomach pump yet, and for what? What am I going to get out of it now?
1: Probably 30 to 90 days, depending on the judge. Uh. Back at the Chicago Avenue station, Borshock went through the routine on Dolly Darling and her publicity agent, Sam Farwell. It turned out just about as we expected. Well, there it is, Dollar. Ballistics clears the twenty-five caliber Beretta they had planted as a prop for the publicity stunt. Mm-hmm. Any uh, previous arrests? Uh, a couple of lewd performances for Dolly, some old ones for Farwell, uh, dissemination of pornographic literature, assaults, no conviction. Mm-hmm. Venneberg's name doesn't show in either package, though. So... Well, it doesn't help much in the little matter of who killed him, does it? And I'm waiting for Helene Venneberg to do that. Expect her to show up at Hanley's tonight? Yeah, could be. And if she doesn't? Well, we got a tail on Hanley. He might lead us to her. If not, our APP will pick her up eventually. Oh, mm, maybe. <laughs> you don't sound very convinced. I guess I'm just not the optimistic type. spent the rest of the day covering the bars, bookie joints, and assorted dives on the near north side that had been notoriously frequented by Martin Venneberg. I wound up in Dalton Towler's neighborhood, no wiser than when I started. I figured I had nothing to lose by paying a little social call. I take it, Mr. Dollar, that your visit has no connection with whatever impression my (laughs) charm wit and brilliance may have had upon you earlier today. Oh, maybe you're being too modest, Mr. Towler. Oh, modesty is an attribute only of the mediocre, sir. It is unbecoming in the realm of talent and utterly irreconcilable with genius. Well, into which category do those poems of yours fall? Uh, Poems, sir? The ones you were rushing to Martin Veneberg when you found his body. Oh, they're not worthy of discussion. Insignificant in conception. Pure in realization. I, uh, I destroyed them. Is that what you did with Venneberg's work, too? Your meaning escapes me, sir. Veneberg was working on something. The first writing he'd done in 20 years. He'd been at it steadily for a week, but the police didn't find a trace of manuscript. What happened to it, Mr. Towler? I trust my impression that you're accusing me of having pilfered. It's, it's, It's erroneous, Mr. Dollar. You found his body. True, but I found no such manuscript. Well, have it your way. But the police are bound to dig up that manuscript sometime.
4: Uh,
1: one moment, sir. Yeah? There is something I can tell you. Well, let's have it. Martin Veneberg was writing. It was being done under contract with someone. For money. Who was he writing it for? So far, I've been unable to ascertain. But he, uh, he showed me something. That it was incredible, Mr. Dollar. Badly written? Martin Veneberg was utterly incapable of writing even one inferior line, sir. No, it was the contents to which I refer. Indescribable filth. I still find it impossible to believe. So you took the manuscript and destroyed it. It's what I would have wished to do. Unfortunately, there was no trace of the manuscript when I arrived there. Uh Uh-huh. He started writing this stuff just about the time his wife disappeared. Any connection? A definite one, sir. Helene had stood by him all these years because of her faith that someday he would write again. When he began, and she learned what he was doing, it was impossible for her to bear. She left him. I suppose that's why he wanted to take her name off that insurance policy. Such, I believe, was his intention? Why tell me all this now, Taller? It was your reference to the police, possibly finding that manuscript. You're hoping that I'll find it first and destroy it? If the rebirth of the soaring Phoenix as was Martin Veneberg should be frustrated because of that writing, it would be the most heinous of all crimes, Mr. Dollar. Worse than murder? In my humble opinion, sir? Yes. It was getting on toward eight o'clock when I left Cowlers, so I called Lieutenant Borshock to see if he was ready to keep our appointment with Richard Hanley. You don't have to bother going over there now, Dollar. Why not, Lieutenant? We just found Helene Zinnaberg. Yeah, where? In the Chicago River. Floating face down. The little pre- preliminary examination shows she died about 12 to 24 hours ago. Well, the time could match pretty closely with Martin's death. Yeah, huh? you know, so could the probable cause of death. A couple of small caliber bullet wounds. Too soon for ballistics to identify, yet, though. Mm-hmm. But what about Richard Hanley? Uh, right now he's under physician's care, broke down completely when they gave him the news. hmm It's possible he did it, of course. Jealousy could give him a pretty good motive for Martin's death. Doesn't tie in with Helene very well, though. No. That that'll be our headache from now on. Well, at least your job's over. Yeah, it looks like it, but uh I'm in no hurry. Oh? <laughs> you got something on your mind? Two things. A missing manuscript and a twenty five caliber beretta. Yeah. Well, I think maybe I got the gun figured, so let's try the manuscript first, huh? Well, Vandenberg was writing again. According to Towler, it was the kind of literature they sell in back rooms and dark alleys. Yeah. Towler thinks somebody who peddles that stuff gave him a commitment. Yeah. Yeah, that starts to tie in with a gunfight on the top, doesn't it? Somebody knew enough to use a Beretta as the plant in that publicity stunt of Dolly Darling's. Even ballistics didn't know the type of gun that had killed Veneberg until maybe an hour before. That on pornographic literature, John, Only thing missing seems to be a motive. Why don't we drop over to Dolly D- Darling's press agent and see if we can find one of them. The offices of Sammy Farwell, publicist, were located on the third floor of an old office building on North Wells Street. Down that way. Yeah.
2: Come on, Dollar.
1: Farwell, open up, police officers. Open up! Better break it down. Oh, wait a minute. Ah. <laughs> Good evening, gentlemen. Welcome to the sacrificial ceremony. Dollar, something's burning in our wastebasket. Pray, pray do not trouble yourselves, gentlemen. It's much too late. The last works of Martin Veneberg have already been reduced to ashes. Where's Farwell? In the inner office, sir. Oh, no need for haste. He's quite incapable of leaving there under his own locomotion. Hmm. Looks like Towler's right. Yeah. There's the Beretta he used. I trust you agree that this is a most satisfactory evening's work, gentlemen. All right, Tal, let's hear about it. of course, Lieutenant. I must confess I feel quite proud of myself for what has just transpired. You knew Farwell had killed Martin and Helene? Not his actual identity, no. But there had been word around of a violent disagreement over the unwelcome attentions Martin's sponsor was paying to Helene. It obviously ended in the shooting. Then he disposed of Helene later as a possible witness. Why didn't you come to the police with this? My dear lieutenant, it was only the manuscript that was of concern to me. It was vital that I get to it before you did. And not until Mr. Dollar departed my humble abode did I learn Farwell's identity through the good offices of an old confrere. So you came up here, shot him, and burned the script? In essence, uh, yes. There was a bit of disagreement involving that gun in there. Yeah. (laughs) No need to appear so disconsolate, Mr. Dollar. I would say that all in all in all, when the phoenix does eventually rise from the ashes, he would agree that things have turned out quite well. Mm -hmm. account item 5, $19.40, hotel bill and miscellaneous. Expense account item 6, $67.60, airfare and incidentals back to Hartford. Expense account total, $153.50. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
0: Welcome back. A really good episode, I think solid as a mystery. You have to appreciate the boldness of tipping your hand by using the same type of gun as was used for the murder and thus revealing your guilt in order to sell your publicity stunt. I mean, that is commitment. I think this was a story that was actually making some interesting arguments. Now, oftentimes, downbeat Johnny Dollar stories are a bit frustrating because oftentimes I don't see the point when, other than, you know, the writer generally, like, Gildowd is being a bit cynical. And there's no real, like, message or takeaway other than maybe, you know, life stakes. But this one, I think, is very different. It's, uh, of course, written by Sidney Marshall. The situation described here actually happened multiple times, where someone would become this very famous, acclaimed, beloved writer and then utterly destroy themselves. And why is that? This story offers a suggestion. Maybe the literary world is to blame. Maybe taking certain writers, putting them on a pedestal, and creating a situation where writers, particularly those who may not be emotionally ready to handle it, surround themselves with people who value them exclusively for what they do and for their performance. And that was something that stood out to me as I was listening to the program. You had Hanley talk about how he tried to help Venenberg so that he would get back to writing great books. Maybe Vandenberg needed somebody who would try to help him cover his equilibrium because he was a human being, not so that he could perform. And you could also hear that in the scene in the park, when Towler is talking about the idea that Vandenberg isn't dead because his work will live on. Now, on one way, that is a nice sentiment, but there's a darker side to it, in that it essentially takes the writer and reduces him to his work. His words may be his accomplishment. But they aren't him. He was a person who lived and breathed, who had feelings and moods, and all the other aspects of humanity. A few years back, I got a collection of short stories by Ray Bradbury. And these were kind of miscellaneous stories by Mr. Bradbury that were not in other collections and were kind of mixed uh, in terms of their quality. And among them, he had three stories that involved favorite writers of his, uh, including Hemingway, Tom Wolfe, and George Bernard Shaw. And each of the stories, to one degree or another, venerated them and their writing talent and its power and the power of their words and their personalities to almost something I think is Practically supernatural. And there can be a problem in elevating people like that. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with being a fan of someone's work and appreciating it. Certainly, there are many artists and creators whose work I enjoy and I value. But it can go too far. And when... The people who really speak in to someone's life are only concerned with their gift, and in bringing that gift out... That's a problem. And as the story tells us, Vindenberg's wife left her first husband to marry him because she wanted to encourage his writing and bring him back to writing great works. Very little thought to actually, you know, helping him recover and getting free of his addictions just for the sake of it. And honestly, I think that his decision to start writing pornographic books was not really based on financial need or desperation. There's no hint of that in this story. It sounds like the books he sold were so reasonably received that, you know, he sells a small number of copies every year. What I think the decision to write pornography was about was essentially rebelling against people who had been putting this pressure on him. Oh, you want me to write? Fine, I'll write. So, of course, that doesn't end up seeing the light of day. And I think the social commentary at the end is unmistakable. Towler is assuming that everything has gone pretty well overall. Three people are dead, but a literary reputation is saved. All in all, isn't that what matters? Now, I will say that not every writer ends up like this. Certainly, I've, you know, signed a publishing contract, I've written a few books, so I've not been very, you know, successful as a writer. But I've met a lot of other writers, some very talented folks, and some who are, you know, just some of the most down-to-earth, decent folks you'll want to meet. I... They tend to, you know, and I'm talking about folks who have written a lot of books, hold decently well, but never become like one of these huge, ridiculously well-known names like, you know, Stephanie Myers or J.K. Rowling or something like that. Late uh, Stephen Bly was at a writer's conference he spoke at in 2008, and his son said he was a minor celebrity because someone had to introduce him him and explain who he was. Th- though there are still some huge sensations. I don't think you hear nearly as much about this sort of thing in the 21st century among very successful writers. I think there are still lessons that do carry over to our modern life and to other types of occupations. I think about so many folks who are presences on social media and who get so driven by folks who who are only concerned about them for what they can give. And that sort of pressure ends up pushing folks towards burnout or towards really destructive behaviors, which have made news over the years. What this story suggests is that healthy, creative people shouldn't have their life centered around blazing people who only care about the work that's produced. I think Sidney Marshall would probably be in agreement with the sentiment expressed in the film Encanto that you are more than your gifts. And that creative people need to have those sort of relationships in their lives to remain healthy. So, a different sort of commentary today, but I think that that point really is in the episode and was something interesting for uh, Sidney Marshall to discuss in an episode of Johnny Dollar. And I I still think 68 years later, it's got some relevance to our modern world. Now, we turn to talking about the passing of the late Angela Lansbury, who so many of us knew from, you know, a wide variety of different things. You know, it depended on your generation, whether it was gaslight or bed knobs and broomsticks or... Beauty and the Beast, or Murder, She Wrote. While I wasn't the biggest Murder, She Wrote fan growing up, I watched quite a few episodes and really enjoyed her, and I've seen her in even more works as an adult. And I remember after the passing of another entertainment legend, finding out that Angela Lansbury actually did old-time radio programs. And I thought it would be an interesting option Because I often do programs after the passing of... A great uh, star. It'd be interesting to listen to some radio programs featuring a great uh, talent who was still living so we could enjoy their work without any of that sort of mixed feeling of being like oh it's too bad, it's so sad they just passed away. So I found there was enough episodes for us to do a summer series and I put the option of A Summer of Angela Lansbury as one of those that that Patreon supporters could choose from a wide variety of different options. The Summer of Angela Lansbury was a... uh winner by a large margin, and we played a lot of programs. Uh, Some were prestige programs, there was some comedy, there was an episode of suspense, but my absolute favorite program was Pride and Prejudice, an episode of the NBC University Theater from February 20th, 1949. Let's take a listen to a clip with 23-year-old Angela Lansbury as Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice.
3: Of all the young women I have met, I cannot say that more than half a dozen of them are really accomplished.
5: You must have very high standards, Mr. Darcy. Just what do you require in a woman?
3: The ideal woman, in addition to attractiveness, grace, and charm, should have, I would say, a fluent knowledge of languages both modern and ancient.
5: Oh, dear me. Go on, Mr. Darcy. You interest me.
3: I should hope that a young lady of accomplishment would have a knowledge of music and drawing.
5: An impressive set of qualifications, Mr. Darcy. But any bright pupil would be quite capable of meeting them.
3: I am not yet finished.
5: Oh, pray continue.
3: I would also desire that she possess a certain something in her air and her manner of walking. The tone of her voice, the manner of speaking, and her smile. How
5: incredible. May heaven save us from such an accomplished creature. She could hardly be human. I flatter myself that I know at least as many women as you do, Mr. Darcy, and I have never seen such taste and application and elegance as you describe. described. I'm no longer surprised
2: at your knowing only six accomplished women. I rather wonder at you knowing any.
0: What a talent. Thank you so much, Angela Lansbury, for so many wonderful performances over the years. Now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to JL, Patreon supporter since November 2020, currently supporting us at the shameless level of $4 or more per month. And that will do it for today. If you want to be sure to never miss an episode, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast with your favorite podcast software, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or the Amazon Music app at amazon.com slash otrdetectives. If you are enjoying this podcast on YouTube, be sure to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and mark the notification bell. We'll be back next Friday with another episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. But coming up tomorrow, we have an adventure with Jace Pearson in Tales of the Texas Rangers, where...
1: It is 10.35 p.m. April 16th, 1947. A black coupe is driving west on a deserted highway 20 miles from San Antonio, Texas. Inside the coupe, the girl glances nervously at the driver.
2: Meeker? Yeah? What's this all about?
5: What do you mean, Kitty? You
2: know what I mean. Why couldn't you just pay me back there in front of my room and house like usual? Why bring me way out here in the sticks?
5: Like I told you, Kitty, the boss says we got to be real careful these days. This is far enough. Come on, let's walk a little.
2: I'd rather go back home.
5: Now, Kitty, don't tell me you're not interested in the money anymore. What's the matter, Kitty?
2: Well, nothing. I'm just tired. No.
5: Sure, that's all it is. Wouldn't be you've gotten cold feet or anything like that, would it?
2: Cold feet? Of course not. It's just that I... That
5: may be why you went to see that doctor the other day? Doctor? Oh, you didn't think the boss and I knew about that, huh? Uh,
2: listen, Meeker...
5: the doctor going to take care of your cold feet, is he? Or maybe the police are. Uh,
2: I haven't been to the police.
5: No, not yet. Well, where were you fixing to go when I came by this evening?
2: Well, just to a movie.
5: Sure, sure. That's why you had all those crop-dusting auto-blanks we told you to burn.
2: Uh, I just
0: forgot to burn them.
5: Yeah? You weren't by any chance figuring on turning them over to the police for evidence, were you?
0: No! I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives. And check us out on Instagram. Instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.